0: Hello. my name is flick beckett and welcome to the love of cinema a picture house podcast proudly sponsored by kia the champion of independent cinema nationwide on today's show we talk with errol morris director of the pigeon tunnel based on john le Carre's autobiography of the same name
1: you asked me about the nature of our relationship i needed to know who i was talking to were you my friend across the fire who are you and if I can't answer that question? <laughs> it's terribly difficult to recruit for a secret service. You're looking for somebody who's a bit bad, but at the same time loyal. There's a type, and I fit it perfectly.
0: Welcome, Errol Morris, to the Picture House podcast. Uh, can I tell you an experience I had while I was watching the Pigeon Tunnel? I, I had to pause it. And I was shocked to see that I was halfway through. I thought, oh, my gosh, it feels like minutes. And then I was really upset that there was only 45 minutes left. And I was so enthralled with the film and the story. And I just wanted to share that with you because it's quite a thing.
1: (laughs) Originally, this was supposed to be a five-part series. Mm. And they decided whoever they might be, they decided that it should be one movie rather than a series. I can tell you that there's enough material in the Pigeon Tunnel for 20 movies. And uh-huh. I still wish I'd had a chance to make a longer version. But thank oh. you. A very kind thing to say.
0: Yeah, well, me too. And I thought I could binge watch this for a whole weekend without a doubt. So if they do want to bring out more, they should. Would- Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> so you have been drawn to some really fascinating subjects, and you've won an Oscar, obviously, for The Fog of War, 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara, which is what brought John le to you, and what was your reaction to him wanting you to be his final testament, so to speak, or to present I his final testament?
1: I remember us ever talking about it. Yes, he mentioned something in the movie itself about it being a final testament i never saw it as such i always thought i was going to have another opportunity to interview him this was in 2019 it's a long time ago Mm. and we all know what happened in 2020 it was covid 19 and everything came to a screeching halt i never got to see him again and then he was dead and it happened suddenly unexpectedly, you look at the movie, here's a man with all of his faculties, Mm. extraordinarily articulate, perhaps the most articulate person that I've ever put on film. And he slips in the bathroom, has a mild concussion, ends up in the hospital, gets pneumonia, and he's dead within a couple of days. And that was it. He was there and then he was gone and uh, of course i never never got to do any follow-up interviews and i'm sad i'm sad he's gone i came to really like him and i really really enjoyed talking to him and thinking about him most of all thinking about the issues that he raised in his fiction in his non-fiction uh issues he raised in this movie that i made
0: i have to say i do feel quite altered for watching it that he is an incredibly insightful man and your presentation obviously must have been it must have been incredibly difficult to know where to start and i love that you started with your relationship with him about the nature of your relationship with him because in a way that is everything isn't it the politics of our of our relationships can you tell me about why you chose to start there
1: i I didn't choose it Mm. that's i noticed at a certain point this is of course not the very first interview i've ever done i've done many i always started an interview the same way i would say quite truthfully i have no idea where to start and I usually don't have a clue. David started it by asking these almost absurd existential questions. Who are you? As if somehow I have an answer prepared or even could even prepare an answer to such a question. I don't know who I am. Maybe someday I'll find out. Maybe I won't. Uh, I don't think I can answer the question, not because I'm unwilling, because I don't even know how to begin to answer such a question.
0: And his his description of you as a spectral figure or a god or sometimes present, I mean, he had obviously made up his mind about who you were to him. And yeah. it, and he sounded quite wary, almost uh, yeah, trepidatious about where... And you were going with you, what your intentions might have been, especially this unmasking that he was quite
1: worried about. It's interesting. It's really become clear to me that we lived in alternative universes. He lives in a world of interrogations, dissembling, lying, uh, misrepresentation. I may live... In a similar world, there's certainly an overlap between his world and mine, but I don't look at interviews as a test of wills. I don't look at them as an opportunity to expose lies. I always assume that everything anybody ever says is untruthful, not intentionally so, but because we're not truth tellers by our very natures. We lie to ourselves. We lie to each other. We live in a sea of lies. And when he says there might not be a difference between interrogations and interviews, I think to myself, well, here's a man who's never done an interview. He's always done an interrogation. Uh, it's endlessly thought-provoking. I think about him- yeah, it.
0: Yeah. It made me think of the bit where his dad didn't believe that he hadn't stolen the money because he was judging his son by his own standards. And for I now, thought
1: that... For now, your pockets.
0: Yeah, and I thought John McCarry was judging you by his standards, you know, how he is with people, you know, and I thought that was quite interesting.
1: He's a person who... Such an odd, schizophrenic kind of personality. A person who retreated into a writing room and created a... I've described it as a tsunami of words, but it's absolutely true. There's just endless series of Le Carre novels. Have I read all of them? I most certainly have not. I uh, came into this project having read only Tinker, Tailor, and the Spy Who Came in from the Cold. Then I read more, but I when I realized I was going to be interviewing him, but I realized also at the same time, there was no way I was going to read everything. There's just too much of it. Everything was just too damn big. And The Pigeon Tunnel, in a way, to me, captures the essence of him. I really love the book. I still love it. It's an oddball book. There's no memoir like it. It's fragmentary. It has no real discernible chronological order. It goes here, it goes there. There are chapters that are half a page long. There are chapters that are 30, 40 pages long. But it works, and it's a meditation, perhaps on his work in general. And it has these bookends that I just still think about all the time. The beginning is the pigeon tunnel itself, that story, which is the frontispiece of the book. And the end is the story of, if you like, an inmost room, the safe at MI6, and the story of Rudolf Hess, number two in the Third Reich, his flight from Germany to Scotland in 1941.
0: Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before so that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. It is so interesting, isn't it, that veil, the thin, thin gossamer veil between truth and fiction and what we can glean from, like you say, this meditation on his life. It's it's almost like he's so tantalisingly close to what is the truth and yet not. <laughs> what, would you, what would you think about that?
1: <laughs> well... I sometimes, I guess this is the truly pretentious side of me. I cite Pascal. He was a lover of this Polish philosopher Koakowski, and who wrote extensively about truth and about Pascal. And truth for me is a quest. Truth is never handed over to you. You try to pursue the truth. You try to figure out what's out there in the world without ever being assured that you have found it. Hopefully you've found it. You can feel you're close to it. But the truth is something that, as David describes it, is perhaps only known by an absent third party. But the important thing to remember, and people, I think, just from talking with so many people about that scene in the movie, they think he's saying the truth is subjective. He's not saying any such thing. He's saying that truth is objective and perhaps ineluctable. Maybe it's not something that we can ever lay our hands on. We can hope to lay our hands on it. We can pursue it, but it is an elusive thing in our lives
0: and he's and it felt like he had spent a life being exposed to betrayal and a very cynical side of life that to me that was metaphorical in a way for the lives that we live now so it, it, it sort of, mm.
1: i think the message when he says that history is chaos he's telling you there are no string pullers There is no rhyme or reason in history. There's no people who control the world and decide what is going to happen and what is not going to happen. It's just a kind of infernal garbage heap out there where people at endless cross-purposes with each other, endlessly confused about themselves and their own motivations act, produce history, But if you think that it's organized, sensible, rational, controlled in any way, you're wrong. And right now, to be horribly frightening, I was talking just last night, should I be making some kind of plan to escape from the United States? And where do I go? The U.S., my country, seems hopelessly insane and chaotic, disorganized. What happens if everything falls apart? Where do you go to hide? can't quite crawl under the bed and say, I want my mommy, although that's what I feel like part of the time. Yeah, I feel at at mercy of forces that somehow I can't even begin to control.
0: No, and I think... You know, that feels like that. What he, he spent his life trying to do was to make some sense of his lack of control, maybe from his childhood with his confidence trickster dad. But, and I do feel like that we are living in a kind of confidence trickster world.
1: His father reminds me of Trump in many ways. Father is an inveterate liar, confidence man, trickster. The real difference between Trump and Ronnie Caldwell is that Trump was more successful. If you wanna call it success, he was more successful. He became president of the United States. But in terms of delusion, self-deception, they're close comrades.
0: They certainly are. Errol, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I can't recommend this film enough. And I really, really hope we get to see some more of that footage one day because it was just incredible. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful thank day. <laughs>